0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come, Follow Me.
1: We also dive into the history and cultures of the text.
0: Thanks for taking the time to share
1: and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, talkingscripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in John chapters 2 through 4. Now, these chapters cover quite a bit of ground. In chapter 2, Jesus is going to perform his first miracle, according to John, where he's in Cana of Galilee, and he turns water into wine at a wedding. And then we read that during Passover, he goes down to Jerusalem and he cleanses the temple. And so we have this temple cleansing in the second chapter of John, And then when we get to chapter 3, he's talking to a man by the name of Nicodemus. Now, I think chapter 3 is taking place in Jerusalem or close by, because Nicodemus is a ruler among the Jews. He's probably a member of the Sanhedrin, which means that he's probably one of those leaders in Jerusalem. And so this conversation that Jesus has with Nicodemus is a very important conversation in the context of the message of Christianity, because in this conversation— Jesus talks about what we must do to see the kingdom of God and that we must be born again. And then after this conversation that he has with Nicodemus, John the Baptist, speaking of Christ, says, he must increase and I must decrease. And there's a really interesting conversation at the end of John chapter 3 that we have about Jesus. And then when we get to chapter 4, we read in John chapter 4, the story of the woman in Samaria. The way I see this, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem. He's heading north, and he goes through Samaria, and he meets a woman at a well, and he testifies of who he is, and many people that live in the city, when they hear his testimony through this woman that has this conversation with Jesus, they are brought to believe in him as the Messiah. And then finally, at the end of the fourth chapter, Jesus performs his second sign. Jesus heals a nobleman's son, and he does so at a distance. He heals this individual even though the person is not with Jesus. And that concludes the fourth chapter of John. So that's kind of the ground we're going to cover in this podcast. Yeah. Now, let me
0: show you how I think these are all connected to each other. You remember that Mike and I have pointed out that John is kind of taking a second look. John said, we lived with him, but we didn't fully grasp him. So let's go back and see things that we didn't see initially. And so John is pointing out in some of the things that he did, what he now recognizes is significant. So these two stories in John chapter 2, which really don't appear in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are John's attempt to say, wait a minute, I see something now, now that he's resurrected, now that he's gone, now that I've caught the vision as to who he was, I see something very significant in those events. So I would suggest that John chapter 2 is John's attempt to introduce what he now sees is two very fundamental works of the Messiah. Number one, he's going to turn the water of our lives into wine. He's going to make our lives better. He's going to bring abundant blessings into our lives. He's going to introduce that idea with the miracle, and then chapter 4, he's going to illustrate that with the woman of Samaria. Watch how he turns ordinary water of their lives into abundant wine, and he's going to do the same thing in your life. If you come unto Christ He will bring blessings and abundant things like the wine he brought in abundance at the marriage feast. But those people who think Jesus is all, let's love each other and let's just get along with each other and let's be kind and nice, which clearly is the Savior's intention, also seem to understand the other part of his mission. And that's why the rest of John chapter 2 is significant, because Jesus walks into the temple and sees things that are not appropriate things that they have brought into the temple that they should not have. And he cleanses the temple. He kicks those things out. Now, the symbolism that I think John is seeing is that that is what Jesus wants to do in our lives, the temple of my body, my temple. I've allowed things to come into my life, into my temple that are not appropriate. And the Savior is going to cleanse that. So those are the two very fundamental works John seems to be seen simultaneously. If you let Jesus into your life, he's going to bring abundant blessings, an abundance of the Spirit and goodness and joy and fruit of the tree of life, water to wine. But he's also going to correct some things. You've allowed some things into your life that you should not have. And he is going to help you cleanse that temple and make it pure and worthy. So in chapter 3, we have an example, a conversation, which is an example of the cleansing that Jesus is talking about. He's going to talk to Nicodemus about being born again, which means part of me needs to die. And just like baptism has the symbolism of death and burial and renewal of coming out, so also I need to kill the natural man inside me and come out a renewed spirit man desirous to follow God's commandments. So there's an example of the cleansing of the temple that Jesus is here to perform in all of our lives. So do you see how those springboard into the next several chapters where he illustrates Jesus either cleansing the temple of someone's life or bringing abundant blessings into their life because they receive him. So that's 2, 3, and 4. So let's start off in chapter 2. Let's go to the miracle of the water to wine. Now, we need to do a little background information because this is not just a little bit of wine. This is a lot of wine.
1: Yeah, we have this gathering where they're gathered together for a wedding, and in the Jewish tradition, these went over several days. And so at some point in this marriage, they've run out of wine. And so we have this interesting verse, verse 6 of chapter 2. There were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. And it's with this that Jesus tells his mother when Mary comes and says they're out of wine— Jesus says, go and fill those water pots with water. That's verse 7. And so they do. And the question is, okay, what is this? You know, we don't really talk about firkins. It's not something that we normally discuss. And in the Greek, it's just two or three measures in these stone water pots. And a measure is about eight gallons. So if there's three measures, there's like 24 gallons. But if there's a couple measures, like 16 gallons of water. So they're big water pots. These are big stone water pots that they use for purification and the idea is that this water would be used for illustrations before you come into a house before you sit and eat in the jewish tradition you would dip your hands in this water and you would kind of wash your hands together and then you would dry your hands and when you would come to someone's home you would also put your feet in this water and your hands and you would be clean let me give you an example, Mike, just yeah. a
0: scriptural example. In Mark chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, it says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they wash their hands oft, eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not and many other things there be, which they had received to hold as the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. In other words, that's what this water was. It was dirty water that you've washed your hands, your feet, and maybe some plates in. That's the water he uses to perform this miracle.
1: And, And there's a couple ways to look at it. We could think of it as that's the dirty water, or maybe that's where the water was stored before they dumped it into another basin. But either way, we're talking about about foot water and hand water. So to me, I look at this as Jesus is taking the common and he's going to turn it into wine. And by my math, if there's six water pots of stone and they each say say they each have two measures of water— that would be like 16 gallons. And by my math, 6 times 16 is almost 100. So on the low end, he's producing about 100 gallons of wine out of this water, and maybe on the high end, closer to 150 gallons of wine. That's quite a bit. And then we also read later that it's the best kind of wine, not the cheap stuff, but the good stuff.
0: Yeah, and that's the point. So I think the three points that John's trying to point out is, it came from a very common, perhaps even a dirty source, this is dirty, washed your hands and your feet in water. Number two, he makes almost 100 to 150 gallons of it. And number three, it's the very best tasting wine they had had at that whole marriage feast. And the governor of the feast kind of says something about now. normally people put the best first You've saved the best to the last, commenting on the quality of the wine that Jesus produced. It was the very best. And I think he's also communicating, this is what he can do in us, Now, that's the point, is this is the symbol that John saw. This was not just a, ooh, cool, Jesus did a miracle. This is a symbol of what he's offering. So let me point out what he's asking. In verse 7, his first word that he gave as an instruction was to fill, Fill the water pots with water. And I think John is saying to us, fill your life with Christ. Fill your life with his words, with his deeds. Read his scriptures, attend his temple, make his covenants. Then he says in verse 8, draw out. And I think the phrase we use in our society is draw upon fill your life with Christ, and then draw upon that. Think about it, ponder, reflect on it. And then his third word in verse eight is to bear, to give, to share, to testify, or maybe to go do. So let me give you the Doctrine and Covenants equivalent. In Doctrine and Covenants section 19, verse 23, He kind of has those same three, but different words. He says, learn of me, listen to my words, and walk in the meekness of my spirit. That's how you'll have peace in me. So the invitation is to take Christ in, fill your life with him, and then don't just leave it stuck in some vault somewhere. Pull it out. Reflect on it again and again. Do you remember what Joseph Smith did with the writings of James? Now, first he had to have filled his life with those writings. He had to have put that inside him. He filled. But then when he's confused about all the religions, he drew it out. He reflected on it again and again. And that's what we should be doing with the life of Christ and his teachings and his scriptures and his words. Draw upon them and then bear. One sense of the word bear is testify of them. Help other people know about Christ. And another sense of the word bear is like that Doctrine and Covenants, walk. That's when you qualify for the abundant blessings He's going to bring into your life. That's when He turns water into wine. Washing water into the best tasting wine, and he will do it in abundance. Now, he's going to extend that very invitation to the woman at the well in chapter 4.
1: As a symbol nerd, I want to just cover a couple symbols and this stuff's in the show notes so here's a couple really interesting ideas the six water pots of stone could represent mortality uh, Bollinger did a really interesting book on numbers in scripture but he talks about the number six being associated with mortality or you know man without God seven being the complete and six being men without God and The stone pots could also be related to the old law, that the law of Moses, no matter how good it was, didn't quite take you the distance. And so what do we do with the stone pots? We transform them. We take this water, which is good, which cleanses, but we transform it into this idea of wine, which is rejoicing. But wine could also be a type of the atonement or the rejoicing at the final feast with Jesus. Another idea, and and some scholars get into this, and I think this is pretty cool, there's seven signs in John, seven, he just does seven of them, and all seven of them could be considered the reversal of the plagues of Moses. And so the first plague that Moses brings out is the water turns to blood, and so John has Jesus is the fulfillment of this, of Jesus turning the water into wine, which is pretty cool. And if you remember, the final plague of the 10 plagues was the death of the firstborn, and what do we have in John? Like the ultimate sign, right? The death of the firstborn, meaning Jesus, but then he's risen. So that's really fun. And then a final thought, Jesus turns the water into wine, and I love this idea in Revelation 21, verse 5, where we read, Jesus makes all things new. Jesus takes something which is ordinary and he turns it into something extraordinary. So there's many ways to read this. I really like this first sign that John gives us. Verse 11 says, "This the beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him." That word miracles in the Greek is another word for sign or token. And so John is using this to say, "Hey, this is one of the ways we know that it's Jesus. And it's really interesting how it's the mother having this experience with her son, and then his glory, verse 11, is manifested forth. That harkens back to John chapter one. The believers will have greater things manifest. So that's really beautiful. And so from that, we transition. Jesus goes during Passover, verse 13 of John 2. He goes to Jerusalem. And notice it says he's going up to Jerusalem. And then he finds in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changers of money. And so when he sees this, he makes a scourge of small cords and he drives them out of the temple. Now, the idea is people are coming from all around the empire, and they we're exchanging money. And even today, if you go to a foreign country, you've got to exchange your dollar or your, whatever your unit of currency is into that uh, system. And that's just kind of how things were back then. And that's kind of how it is today a lot of times. I mean, unless, of course, you have Visa, everyone takes Visa. But back to the story. So uh, they don't have visa back then, and so they've got to exchange their money, and that did take place. And I think in this context, in John chapter two, Jesus isn't so much objecting to the fact that they're doing it; he's objecting that they're doing it here, making his house a house of merchandise. Verse sixteen is the issue. Now, the coins that they were using, I've often heard people say, well, they used coins that didn't have images on them, and that's why we have that exchange. But we actually have in the show notes and the slides the picture of the Tyrrhenian coinage that they did use, and it did have an image on it. I don't think Jesus has a problem with people using money or exchanging it. I think the issue is the location. They're doing it here in the courtyards of the temple. So with that, he's going to cleanse the temple. He's going to drive them out. And I really like, Bryce, how you connect this idea to chapter 3 and chapter 2. I really like how you talk about cleansing our own lives. Well, I think John kind of picks up on that because
0: they're going to ask Jesus for what authority do you have to cleanse the temple? They knew that it should have been cleansed. They're just going to question his right to do that. So they ask him for a sign, and the sign he gives is destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they don't understand what he's saying and respond. Forty and six years was this temple in building, and you'll rear up in three days. But John caught it. John says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So John caught that this cleansing of the temple is connected to the cleansing of our temples, the cleansing of our body. He caught that this was a metaphor. So if we extend that metaphor, we need to understand that Jesus isn't just water to wine. Yes, there is an abundant blessing that's coming into your life if you will feel and draw and bear. But the other side of that is there are changes needed. In every single one of us, let's be humble enough to recognize that all of us still have things in our temple that shouldn't be there telestial things and terrestrial things. And we are under covenant to sacrifice them, to get them out, to let them go. And Jesus is going to help us do that. The symbolism of this is significant because A, if you let him in, he'll bless you. But B, if you let him in, there's some changes you need to make. Are you willing to make those changes? Are you going to bury the natural man? Are you going to let go of those things? Because that's what Jesus is
1: inviting all of us to do. So it's a worthy place for the Spirit to dwell. As a kind of nerdy side note, in verse 20 of chapter 2, the Jews said, forty and six years was this temple and building.'" So Josephus kind of gives us the timeline of when Herod the Great starts the reconstruction or the remodeling of the temple, and that was 20 to 19 BC. And so if that's correct, if his history is right, this statement in John chapter 2 would be right around 27 to 28 AD. That kind of gives us a time period as far as when that's taking place. I'm a time nerd. I like to kind of pinpoint things. I kind of think Jesus is born in 4 BC because that's when Herod the Great dies and he's the character in Matthew that's killing the babies. And so this would kind of put us, you know, more towards the end of his life. Not quite, but kind of there. And it's in this context that he's talking about his temple of his body. But I really like this as an enigmatic expression, because he says, destroy this temple, and he's at the temple. And then he says, I will raise it up. Now, he's talking about the temple of his body, verse 21. But what if he's also talking about actually even the temple? In other words, the temple will rise again, Many Christian traditions believe in this idea that the temple will come again. Clearly, John says he's talking about the temple of his body, but it's interesting that he's making the comment at the temple and that how they're misunderstanding it. He's talking about another temple, but I sometimes look at this and say, I think there's a reason why he chose that place to use that phrase. Just a thought. I mean, I don't know, but just a thought there. Bryce, what else do you see going on in John 2? Let's talk about the sign that they asked. So it seems that the Jews were very aware
0: that those things did not belong in the temple, that they should never have allowed them to put them there. And they're kind of ashamed that someone else had to come in and cleanse the temple. So they're not questioning why he did it or what he did. What they're questioning is, is who are you to do it? We're the ones that should have done it we're in charge of the temple. Who are you to come in and cleanse the temple? So what sign do you give that you have the authority to cleanse the temple? And I love that he actually gives many signs. I love that he calls it my father's house. But Jesus gives the sign of his authority as his resurrection. And I think we all need to shout out that if Jesus rose from the dead, then everything he did And everything he said is true, and he was the Son of God. That's why we celebrate Easter. It's not just that I'm going to die. There's a beautiful message in the fact that all of us are going to be resurrected because he was. But one of the reasons we celebrate Easter so much is it is the crowning sign that everything he said and everything he did was authorized, and that he was the Son of God. And that that empty tomb stands as a witness of his divine authority. That means he can forgive sins. That means he can raise the dead. He can bless me. He can turn water to wine. He is, in fact, the son of God. And the sign is the empty tomb. His rising from the dead. And we ought to celebrate that victory. We ought to celebrate that rising from the dead, not just as our own freedom,
1: but as the sign he gave of his authority. Beautiful. Okay, so with that, we're going to go to chapter 3, and we read in verse 1, There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, first off, I want to just make this note that John notes that this individual, Nicodemus, comes to him by night. That's verse 2. And there's a lot of negative press that Nicodemus gets because he's coming at night, and there's people that look at him as if, hey, he's afraid of what people will think, and that's why he's coming at night. I don't take that position. I take the position that Nicodemus is probably a busy guy— and frankly, so is Jesus, and this might be a pause in their schedules, and this just kind of fits. And also, perhaps John is using that idea of this exchange happening at night. He might also be using this symbolically to teach other truths. So that's kind of how I look at it, but I know not everybody agrees.
0: Now, Mike, I take the opposite position because I think it makes him a symbol. I don't mean to diminish Nicodemus at all as an individual, but I like to see in that symbolism the very message that Jesus is now going to correct. So I see this as that dual nature. Part of me doesn't want to be seen with Christ, and yet part of me knows that Jesus is the Christ, because that's the symbol of all of us. We are here not to wrestle with Satan. That's not the victory of mortality. We are here to wrestle with the natural man inside us. I love this verse in Second Nephi chapter 2 from Father Lehi's explanation of the plan of salvation and how it all works with agency and fall and creation and atonement and how it all comes together. This verse is so instructive, in my opinion, as to what we wrestle with in mortality. After saying in verse 11 that there must needs be opposition in all things, Lehi teaches in verse 16, Wherefore the Lord God gave unto man that he should act for himself. Wherefore man could not act for himself, save it be he should be enticed by the one or the other. If part of me isn't enticed to do evil, then I really don't have agency. It's the enticement to do both good and evil that allows the choice inside me. So here I am wrestling. There's a part of me, now we call it in the church, the natural man. The angel will say to King Benjamin in Mosiah chapter three, that the natural man is an enemy to God. And unless you put off the natural man, you're never going to make it back to the father's presence and receive what he has for you, that you are in a path of opposition to God. And those enticements are very real. Every one of you listening is going to wrestle with the enticements of the natural man. They're things like pride and jealousy and lust and anger and laziness. So part of me is enticed. The other part of me is the spiritual part that is enticed by the things of God. Love and goodness are as natural to that part of me as lust and pride is to the natural man in me. And both of those forces are competing for my agency. Which am I going to choose? Paul will use the word that they're warring against each other inside him. So I see Nicodemus as a symbol of all of us because I think part of him seeks the praise and the admiration of the Jewish brethren. He wants to be liked. He wants them to like him, and he knows that they don't like Jesus.
1: By the way, Bryce, uh, John Taylor would agree with you. He said, Nicodemus was a prominent man among the Jews, and he thought it might injure his reputation if he was seen visiting Jesus. He definitely takes that position. Yeah, I want their applause and their
0: esteem, therefore I'm going to go to Jesus by night. Do you see the pull in that one direction? Let me cover myself with darkness— so that they don't see. But the other part of him is that I know this man is a good man. He says in verse 2 Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do the miracles which thou doest except God be with him. So there's the other pull. I know you're divine. I know you are God's son, but I don't want to be seen with you. Now, the Savior's going to cleanse that temple. You can't be that concerned about what other people think and walk into the Father's presence. You've allowed things in your life that shouldn't be in your life. So Jesus is now in that setting going to talk about cleansing the temple. And what he's going to say is one of those is going to destroy the other. So choose to destroy the natural man. If I don't control my natural man, my natural man will control me. And so Jesus is now going to talk about a death
1: and a rebirth. Yeah. Jesus says in verse 3, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born again is a really important aspect of following Jesus. The word uh, again is this Greek word anothen, and it means to be born from above, but it can also mean being born again. And I think that word, that construction in the Greek, is deliberate. I think John is trying to say, you've got to do both. You have to be born from above, and nothing, but you also must be born again. Joseph Smith said this about this concept, "'This eternal truth settles the question of all men's religion.'" A man may be saved after the judgment in the terrestrial kingdom or in the telestial kingdom, but he can never see the celestial kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. I really like that quote because essentially he's saying to even see it, I have to have a change of heart. This is described in Alma 5. This is also described by many modern apostles. Elder D. Todd Christofferson in 2008 gave a talk called Born Again, and we referenced that in the show notes, as well as Elder James E. Faust in 2001. His talk also was called Born Again. In these talks by Elder Christofferson and Elder James E. Faust, they lay out the conditions of being born again. And according to one interpretation, we can know that we're being born again as we're feeding the sheep, as we're trying to keep the commandments, as we're trying to continue in our discipleship. Being born again is a process, but it's also an event. Meaning, it can be an event where we have a spiritual experience and we're changing our heart, but it's also a process of our daily walk with Jesus. And so essentially what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, this is part of following me. This is essential. And then Nicodemus misunderstands in verse 4, and he says, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, ye must be born again. And then Jesus shifts and gives an analogy to the pneuma or the wind, that Greek word for wind is also the Greek word for spirit, and in Hebrew it also works. The ruach is wind or spirit, and it's this idea. At least the way I read verse eight is we can't see the wind per se, but we can see what it touches, we can see what it affects, we can see the things that it does, and I really like this as a springboard. If I was teaching a class for the discussion about how is the spirit of God or a testimony of God, like the wind. And a couple ideas, one would be we see its effects, we can feel it, but we may not necessarily see it, and the wind, though not perceived with the eye, can be perceived in other ways. And I think sometimes it's difficult to communicate spiritual things in a secular world, and yet Jesus does a really good job of talking about this idea of being born again likening it unto the wind. And I think this really could be a good discussion in a classroom. You could ask questions like, when have you felt an experience of being born again? And sometimes when we as Latter-day Saints have conversation with our Christian friends who are not of our faith, their definition of being born again might be a little bit different. It might be for them, hey, I was born again when I accepted Christ as my Savior, when I felt the Spirit." and I wanted to follow Jesus. And I think that is a really good explanation. And yet with the Book of Mormon, we have this really great passage in Alma 5 where Alma takes us through a list of questions, and he asks us, can we sing the song of redeeming love? Do we want to follow Jesus? And then one of my favorite questions in Alma 5, okay, if you felt that way before, can you feel so now? And I like to take that question and tie it into the sacrament, that weekly reminder, checking in with the Lord. How am I doing? Where am I going? And what adjustments can I make? And I really like this exchange. Literally, chapter three could be its own gospel doctrine lesson, because there's so many ways you could teach this. But I really think just reading the text and having an open conversation with the people that you're with, whether it's in a family setting or in a classroom setting, just letting the text speak and letting it breathe... And then talking about it, we'll invite the Spirit.
0: Now, I love where Jesus goes next. He talks about the wind blowing, and then he says, look, you need a Messiah. You need help. You need a Redeemer. You need someone to help you in this process of being born again. This is not something we do alone. We do not have to overcome the natural man on our own. And so the Lord introduces this idea of getting help. And I love that he references Moses and the brass serpent. In verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. There's the source of strength. In 2 Nephi chapter 25, when Nephi is talking about that brass serpent, in verse 20, he points out that it had power to heal the nations. And the idea behind that brass serpent is that you have to look to God in order to live. So if you're going to overcome the natural man, if you're going to lay down that, that animal inside you, if you're going to make that offering to God, you have to find Jesus in your life and let him in. It's kind of coming back to that, get him in, draw upon it, bear it out, get Jesus in your life, and he'll help you
1: overcome the natural man. I really like this passage in Alma 33. Alma's talking about types. Types. And he says this in Alma 33, verse 19. He says, Behold, he was spoken of by Moses. Yea, behold, a type was raised up in the wilderness that whosoever would look upon it might live. And many did look and live, but few understood the meaning of those things, and this because of the hardness of their hearts. But there were many who were so hardened that they would not look. Therefore, they perished. Now, the reason they would not look is because they did not believe that it would heal them. Now, reading it that way provokes some ideas. One of them is this. The people that were there, as the people were being bitten in the numbers account, they saw other people being healed, but they did not believe that the miracle would work in their lives. That's one way that I read this. I, I think that what Alma's trying to invoke in our minds is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is effective in our life and can be, but we must believe that it will heal us. And I think that is one of the root ideas taught in the Gospel of John. Over and over again, John teaches this idea. Now, it's translated in the English as belief. Whoever will believe. We read this idea in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, That word for believeth is that is that greek idea of trust and it's this idea that even at a great risk i will trust jesus and so it's kind of translated as belief and i think that's great but i think a better rendition would be this deep and abiding trust and that is kind of how i read alma 33 that those that that aren't healed, it's because they just don't trust it. They don't trust that that will work in their life. And so I think that John and Alma are both inviting us to take that step.
0: I think there's another Book of Mormon verse we ought to mention. In First Nephi chapter 17, Nephi again mentions the brass serpent, but he adds another obstacle that's going to get in the way of overcoming the natural man because we don't turn to the Lord and seek his help. In First Nephi chapter 17, speaking of the brass serpent, verse 41, he did straighten them in the wilderness with his rod, and they did harden their hearts as even as ye have. And the Lord straightened them because of their iniquity. He sent fiery, flying serpents among them. And after they were bitten, he prepared a way that they might be healed. And the labor which they had to perform was to look. Now, listen to Nephi give this other obstacle. And because of the simpleness of the way or the easiness of it, there were many who perished. So one obstacle to overcoming the natural man with the help of Christ is not trusting him, not turning to him because I don't trust him. Another obstacle is it's just too easy. It's easy to do, which means it's easy to not do. In our busy, hurried, rushed lives, sometimes we just forget
1: to do the simple things that would help us overcome the natural man. Sometimes we don't see the connection. I one time had a back problem, and I was doing a lot of cycling. And I went in and I talked to one of my coaches, and he said, when was the last time you stretched your hamstrings? And I said, what do my hamstrings have to do with my back? And he said, oh, only everything. Yeah. And I started stretching my hamstrings, and guess what? Your back got better. Yeah. And so I think sometimes we just don't see the connection. So how
0: about reading scriptures and overcoming the natural man? How about filling my life with good music, better music than I've been listening to, and overcoming the natural man? How about a monthly visit to the temple and overcoming the natural man? Sometimes because it's easy to do, it's easy to not do. So commit to turn to Christ. And number one, trust Him. Trust Him. Lay down all those barriers of fear and pride that keep us from Him and trust Him. And then do the things that He invites us to do. That's how the nations will be healed. And back to John chapter 3, that's how we will have everlasting life. Now, one more comment on this beautiful verse in chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, is it illustrates the very nature of Christ. Do you remember back in premortal life where he committed to do the work and give the Father the glory? He was always true to that. He was willing to do the work the Father asked, but always point to the Father in giving the glory. Notice how he words this. He does not say, for God so loved the world that he sent me. He doesn't say it that way. He points the finger to the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him, not in me, not that that would be inappropriate, because it's true, but I just love that he's pointing the finger and the credit and the glory to the Father.
1: Now, there's another way to read this, and I'm not going to settle it, because I don't know. I like Bryce's interpretation, verse 16, 17, Jesus speaking, but it could also be the meditations of John. So this is Leon Morris's explanation. He said, All are agreed that from time to time in the Gospel of John we have the meditations of the evangelist, but it is difficult to know where these begin and where they end. In the first century, there were no devices, such as inverted commas, to show the precise limits of quoted speech. The result is that we are often left with the probabilities and we must work out for ourselves where a speech or a quotation ends. And so I'm open to the idea that at the end of verse 15, John inserts 16 and 17. His kind own of, commentary. Yeah, to kind of shed light on this. I'm totally open to it. I'm also open to it being Jesus's speech. I really don't know, but I do like that Jesus speaking to a Pharisee invokes the image of the Nehushtan, the brass serpent that Moses raises up. And I like that as even as that serpent was raised up, so shall the Son of Man be raised up. Now, I know we're in John. I just want to do a brief geek out moment on Alma 33. Go to Alma 33. We talked about how it would heal them. There's a couple other interesting things going on here what I would call temple images. We have a symbol of Christ requiring our attention, this serpent that's raised up. We have the anastasis or the standing up in the presence of God. That's the end of verse 22, where it talks about the anastasis or that word for resurrection. All shall stand before him. So they're seeing this image of Christ. They're standing before him. And then verse 22, they're coming to a place of judgment, And then we read in verse 23 that there will be a tree springing up into everlasting life that is in you. And I like all those images, right? We're seeing this image of Christ, we're being resurrected, we're standing up, and then Alma invokes this image or this idea of a tree. There was a tree in the Holy of Holies in the first temple, and there will be a tree again in John's writings when we get to Revelation at the end of the Bible. So there's some really neat images here that are kind of floating around in Alma's commentary, and I really do believe Alma's having some of the same visionary experiences that John has had, and they both relate with this idea of looking to Christ and live and being changed, becoming new people. And they're teaching it and doing it with different symbols, but also some of the same symbols. And so I really think that's good.
0: Yeah. So that's the episode with Nicodemus. It's that wrestle of the natural man and the spirit man inside of me. So let me just bookend it. Let me just come back to Nicodemus as maybe a lesson learned commentary. In John chapter 7, if you'll look at the very chapter heading, at the very end it says, people have various opinions concerning him. So there's this wrestle, is Jesus a good man? Is he the son of God? Or is he an imposter? Is he a devil? And they have differences of opinion. For example, verse 12, and there was much murmuring among the people concerning him. For some said, he is a good man. Others said, nay, but he deceiveth the people. And this whole chapter is about that debate between people, some saying he's good and some saying he's bad. Now, guess who stands up in that chapter to be counted? The very person who came by night. And John points that out at the very end of chapter 7, verse 50, Nicodemus saith unto them, and then this parenthesis. He that came to Jesus by night being one of them. So now Nicodemus, in the middle of this contention over who is Jesus, Nicodemus stands up and says, doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? I see this as John redeeming Nicodemus to say, lesson learned. I am turning to God and I am letting go of my need for your approval. And Nicodemus stands up and says, no, let's look to him at his actual words. Let's focus on what he's doing and let that be our determination. In other words, he kind of defends Jesus. And I think that flies in the face of the Nicodemus who was afraid and came to Jesus by night. And I think Nicodemus heard the message and changed. I think he's looking to God and starting to live. He will also assist in the burial of Jesus's body after the crucifixion. Clearly, he considers himself a
1: disciple. Yeah. So... If you go towards the end of the Gospel of John, after Jesus has been killed, the body of Jesus is being put in the charge of Joseph of Arimathea. That's John 19, verse 38. And then we read in verse 39, there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Then they took the body of Jesus wound it in linen clothes with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. So we go from this individual who comes to Jesus by night, and they have this dialogue in the third chapter, to a man who is a leader of the Jews in chapter 7, who defends Jesus in the midst of this great opposition. And then he comes and pays Jesus great respect when he cares for his body in his death. And so I think John is also trying to show the progression of Nicodemus in his faith and trust in Jesus.
0: It's a beautiful story. Now, the rest of chapter 3 is kind of a juxtaposition, kind of the opposite, kind of a foil. I see Nicodemus as someone who was wrestling with his position among men, and he wanted to maintain that position among men. The rest of chapter 3 is the story of a man who was not concerned one bit about his position with men and simply sought to fulfill the role he was given in drawing attention to Christ. I love the way chapter 3 ends, and that is the story of John. It starts with John's disciples being a little jealous that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing. And a lot of people are turning to Jesus. A lot of people are being baptized by Jesus, and they're leaving John. It seems to be that the, the crowd that John is preaching to is diminishing, and the crowd that Jesus is preaching to is increasing. And John's disciples are a little jealous for John's sake. And so they come to John, And they say, verse 26, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come unto him. Now listen to John's response and
1: compare it to Nicodemus early on in the coming by night. Yeah. John has been garnering disciples, and now he's basically handing the baton to Jesus and saying, Jesus is the one that is to take us forward. I must decrease. Verse 27, John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except to be given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receive his testimony." So John is essentially, there's a lot of things he's doing, but one of the things he's doing is making sure that his disciples know that Jesus must increase and I must decrease, but he's also the friend of the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, a lot of times is the go-between. You see, in the traditions of the Jews, when the bride and the bridegroom were to get married, Often they would not communicate directly, but the friend of the groom would communicate between both of them, and a lot of scholars looked at this idea as that friend between the bride and the bridegroom would be the role of the prophet. The prophet who would talk to the groom would then come to the bride, which is the church, and communicate those messages. And often what they would have between them would be this document called a ketubah, and it was like a marriage contract. And both the bride and the bridegroom would agree to the terms of the wedding, and then they would eat bread and drink wine to commemorate and to ratify that ketubah or that covenant. And I kind of see John filling this position. He's between Jesus and the church, and he's coming to the point where he says, the marriage is to take place. Now, the way I look at the marriage taking place, there's a lot of ways, but one of them is the fulfillment of Jesus's atonement. When he completes the atonement, it's like him fulfilling his end of the marriage. That's one way to look at it. So I really like that idea where he says, I must decrease and he must increase.
0: Now, isn't that a symbol of what all of us as teachers and parents need to do? We're gonna go in there and we're gonna love them and we're gonna teach with enthusiasm. Their hearts are going to be drawn to us. But then comes a critical moment. Once we've won their heart over, we now need to step out of the way and allow Jesus to step in the way. That phrase, he must increase, but I must decrease, describes the role of parents and teachers. I have loved you, and I have tried my very best to lead you to the tree of life. Now that you've found it, let me step down. And you need to drink from his fountain and love him and know him. He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a beautiful chapter, John chapter 3, with Nicodemus and John kind of coming and showing us those different perspectives of, are you worried about what men think, or are you just worried about Christ? Now, that leads us to the woman at the well. This is a beautiful story. May I suggest we look for three threads that flow throughout this story. Thread number one is the opening of the eyes of a woman and seeing who Jesus really is. That's John's theme. John is asking us to come back and see him with a new set of eyes and let him grow in our perspective. Let him expand. And this woman's going to illustrate that. Let me do that theme really quickly. In verse 9, Jesus was simply a Jew. That's all Jesus was, was a Jew. And she probably said it with a little disdain. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? A little bit later, after conversing with him and connecting with him and seeing who he is and watching his eyes and hearing the tone in his voice she will refer to him twice as Sir, a much more respectful title, Sir. Later, she will refer to him as a prophet. Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And then later, she will run in and tell the the people of the town, come see a man that told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? So Jesus went from a Jew to sir, to a prophet, to the Christ. And that's exactly what John is inviting us to do, to re-see him and expand our vision of who he is and what he did. Now that's thread number one. Thread number two is to watch the water to wine. This is an illustration of water to wine, that he is going to offer her wine, instead of the water that she's holding on to. And then the third thread that we'll get to in a bit is a commentary on the position of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints today. But let's walk through the story. This is a beautiful story. Jesus is on his way back to Galilee. He's going through Samaria, which most Jews did not. They would go around Samaria. But Jesus is going right through. At noon on a particular warm day, he finds himself on the outskirts of Sychar, and that's where Jacob had given some land to Joseph, and Jacob has, had built a well there, and out comes one of the Samaritan women with all the necessary equipment to draw water out of the well, and Jesus is sitting next to the well. He's thirsty, it's hot, he's traveled, and he's needing some water. So he says to her in verse 7, give me to drink. This is where she responds kind of with surprise, maybe a little bit of disdain. How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Now watch the invitation to fill, draw, and bear. Watch the invitation to turn water to wine. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith unto thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. That's the invitation. Let Jesus in. Turn to him. Learn of him. Listen to his words. Walk in the meekness of his spirit. You would ask for my water. She responds, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou this living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? Oh, how I wish Jesus would have answered that question. What he could have said is that he was the God that Jacob worshiped, that Jacob provided the well, but Jesus provided the water in the well. He didn't answer that. Jesus said, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. That's what Jesus is offering. If you will turn to Christ, he will turn water to wine. He will give you water that will satisfy your thirst. You will never thirst. Now, again, that's clearly not talking about bodily thirst. It's a deeper spiritual satisfaction. It is the joy of the gospel. And the only way you can know that joy is to let Christ into your life. President Nelson, before he was the president of the church, spoke of that. He said the following, saints can be happy under every circumstance. We can feel joy even while having a bad day, a bad week, even a bad year. My dear brothers and sisters, the joy we feel has little to do with the circumstances of our lives and everything to do with the focus of our lives. We can feel joy regardless of what is happening or not happening in our lives. Joy comes from and because of Him. He is the source of all joy. For Latter-day Saints, Christ is joy. That's the water that Jesus is asking us to drink. Let me give you the Book of Mormon's rendition of this invitation. In Alma chapter 32, we are asked to plant a seed inside of us and then to nourish that seed. And if we do, if we plant and then nourish that seed and it grows up and produces fruit, Watch what that fruit will do. Alma 32, verse 42. And because of your diligence and your faith and your patience with the word in nourishing it, that it may take root in you, behold, by and by ye shall pluck the fruit thereof, which is most precious, which is sweet above all that is sweet, which is white above all that is white, yea, and pure above all that is pure. And ye shall feast upon this fruit even until ye are filled, that ye hunger not, neither shall ye thirst." All of us can testify of that joy. I can testify of that joy. The joy that Jesus brings into our life, even if things aren't perfectly going well in our life, that is the water in that well that he offers.
1: Yeah. So he says, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidst thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Okay, so first of all... This woman's an outsider. She's living with a guy she's not married to. She's also had five husbands. So she's definitely on the outs as far as what would be considered the cultural norms of Jesus's day. Even in Samaria, right, Mike? Even I, I in think Samaria, that would have been. Yeah not kosher,
0: and she would have been kind of ostracized.
1: Yeah, and I think that might be why she's coming at the time of day. It's the middle of the day, and there's some speculation as to that's why, and that she's alone and she's kind of an outsider. So I really like this as a depiction of Jesus reaching out to the people that are on the fringes, reaching out to those that are maybe cast aside. And so knowing then that she's not talking to a normal person, her perception that he's a prophet she asks a question that was probably a religious question that existed amongst the Samaritans. And the question is this, do we worship at Gerizim, the temple that should have been there, or in Jerusalem? Now, historically, we just need to know this. This was a bone of contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans had a temple on the top of Mount Gerizim, which is by modern-day Nablus, but it was anciently Shechem, and that was in the heart of Samaria. And that temple was destroyed by the high priest John Hyrcanus. Prior to Jesus' life, John goes in there and destroys it, and according to some historical accounts, he destroys the temple amongst the Samaritans because he wanted to unite the Samaritans with the Jews, and that plan backfired. I mean... I can't even imagine a parent destroying their child's car or something that their child loved in the hope that it would endear their child to them. That's definitely not going to work and it didn't work in the case of John Hyrcanus when he destroys it, the Samaritans are even more upset with the Jews. And so they don't have dealings with the Jews and we know that there was definitely hard feelings. And so she wants Jesus to settle it. Hey, tell me who's right. That's the question. Hey, if you're a prophet Give me the religious answer that everyone's asking. And Jesus answers in a really interesting way. Verse 21, he said, "'Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither worship in this mountain,' meaning Mount Gerizim, "'nor at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews.'" But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. That's really important. One of the things I think Jesus is communicating is to this woman you're not really sure what you worship. I think he's denigrating some of the faith of the Samaritans. I think also that it's complicated because the Jews in Jerusalem are going to reject Jesus, and at least in this account in John 4, the entire Samaritan city is going to come to Christ. So I think John is opening the window to this idea that outsiders are welcome in, and that outsiders, many of them, see Jesus for who he is before the people that are the supposed insiders in Jerusalem. So I think there's a lot of reversals going on here, and I think it's more complicated than a simple reading. I think one of the things Jesus is saying is, we are going to come to a time when people will know to worship Jesus. And then he says in verse 24, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, I agree that God is a spirit. He is also corporeal, according to our doctrine, but he does have a spirit. So we read the JST where Joseph says, for unto such hath God promised his spirit, and they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus presents to her this idea that maybe her question is the wrong question. And I think what he's trying to do is point her to see him for who he is. Because after he says that in verse 24, the woman responds, I know that the Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. Now this is the crescendo. This is a defining moment in the story where Jesus says, I that speak unto thee am he. And if you go to the footnote... It literally says in 26a, the term I am, ego and me, used here in the Greek, is identical with the Septuagint usage in Exodus 3.14, which identifies Jehovah. We even give you a translation of verse 26 that reads a little bit different than the King James. It reads as follows. Jesus says to her, the one speaking to you, I am. And that's probably a better translation. In other words, I am, ego and me, meaning I am that God that spoke to Moses in Exodus three, when Moses says, tell me your name. And the Lord says, I am that I am, or I am what I will be. Jesus is invoking the divine name to tell her, not only am I the Messiah, because to the Jews, the Messiah was a king that would come and offer redemption. Jesus is tying himself to Jehovah, the God of the old Testament. Now in the Christian tradition, those are both in Jesus. He is the God of the Old Testament, but he's also the Christ. Both those ideas are married. They're attached together right here in John 4. Now, there are other places, but I think that's an important thing. This is, at least in John, the first time Jesus clearly states who he is to a mortal. And I don't know if the Jews totally get it. And what I mean by that is, even after Jesus is resurrected, we read this in Acts when the apostles say, "Okay, Jesus, are you going to take the throne now?" And he says, "No, that's not what we're doing. I want you to go to spread the message of the gospel, which I think the, the message is, we're being redeemed from the kingdoms of this world, meaning death and sin. And I want you to go preach that. I'm not here to take over the city of Jerusalem. I'm not here to conquer Rome to establish, yeah, a political kingdom. But that idea of a political kingdom is married to that idea of a Messiah. And so I think as Latter-day Saints, we take that to mean millennial, that the Savior will one day take his throne as king of kings on the earth. But it certainly wasn't this day. But this woman who's an outsider goes into the city. They believe her word. They listen to Jesus, and he tarries with them.
0: I love it. Now watch what she does with that. Once he bears that testimony, I am... I am he, I am the Messiah. She is fully convinced apparently, because I love in verse 28, the woman left her water pot, symbolic of all that she had been, even that wayward woman, maybe even the sinful woman that was living with someone who wasn't her husband, she left her water pot. She ran to the city and bore testimony and said, Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Now, do you see that culmination of that story? She went from a Jew to fully convinced that she has now found the Messiah. She's testifying of him. That's a beautiful story. Now, watch what happens. We get to repeat that story with the people of the city. John doesn't tell us this story, but it sure implies the story here that we had another version of water to wine. So she got the people to come out to the well to hear him for themselves. While that's happening, there's this beautiful little side note. Jesus says to the disciples, "'Say ye not that there are four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest.'" Speaking of
1: the Samaritans.
0: Yeah. Speaking of that village that's coming out, that's the city of Sychar that's coming out to hear him. Which they would not have expected him to say. Yeah. He says, verse 36, he that reapeth, receiveth wages and gathereth fruit unto life eternal. Join me in this quest. Verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him. For the saying of the woman. How convincing was her testimony to the city that they would believe before they even came out? That's the change that came over the Samaritan woman, an outsider. Verse 40 is where I wish we had a whole nother chapter here. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them and he abode there two days. What did he say? What did he teach? What were the miracles he performed in a Samaritan village among believers? Verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. And then I love that they go back to the woman. Verse 42, whose testimony got them to go out. And this is the role of parents, the parent who got the child to turn to Jesus, a teacher who got the student to turn to Jesus. And then comes the student back and says to the teacher, this is the crowning moment that I hope all of my children have. This is where I hope they come back to me and say to me, Dad, now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we have heard him ourselves and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Now, before we leave it, can I pick up that third thread that weaves throughout this story? And that's a foreshadowing of the position that we are in, in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Let me say this humbly and boldly, because I recognize the position we're in, in what we know and what we have, and that we need to bear that testimony like this woman did. She says to him, Well, we're right because we worship in the right place, and you Jews think you're right because you worship in the right place. Notice they seem to be contending, Jews and Samaritans, over who worships in the right place. And today we have similar arguments going on. Some people argue that they worship on the right day. Other people argue that they worship in the right way. And Jesus just dispels all of that. He says, woman, believe me, the hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem ye shall worship the Father. It is not where you worship. It's not on what day you worship. The key to salvation is to know who you worship. And then Jesus declares, ye worship ye know not what. Now project out 2,000 years later. That knowledge of who we worship was lost during a dark apostasy. The main plain and precious truths that were stripped from the gospel during the apostasy have to do with God's identity, who He is and what He is and what He wants and where He came from and how He operates and what the relationship between the Father and the Son is. Those were the plain and precious truths that were taken out of the gospel, and they have been restored today five seconds into the first vision, and Joseph Smith knew what no one else on the planet seemed to know. He knew who God was. He knew the relationship between the Father and the Son. May I suggest that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sits in that position today and kindly says to the world, Ye worship, ye know not what. It has been restored today who we worship. The greatest thing we offer the world. We can offer them the gift of the Holy Ghost. We can offer them priesthood and additional scripture. We can offer them temple covenants. We have many things to offer the world, but the single greatest thing we offer the world is the knowledge of who our Father is, what He wants, how He operates, the relationship between Him and His Son, the marriage relationship He sits in. There is a Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother. We know who we worship. Therefore, it is our duty to bear testimony of the identity of the Father that has been revealed to us in our day to tell the world who we worship. I think this story is so significant and I think John knew it would be significant. He knew the role it would play in the latter days and I think he included this story to send a message to us. It is absolutely essential that we share those truths
1: and we teach the world who he is. And I think with that, we can communicate those ideas in a spirit of humility by just meeting people where they are finding connection with our Christian brothers and sisters in the sense of finding ways that we agree, like talk about the things that we agree on. And then when they ask us questions, we can kind of be like Jesus, meet them where they are and lead them along in a way that's kind. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus would have just come upon her and said, listen, I'm the Messiah, do what I say, would have been too much. And so what did he do? He met her where she was and he led her along slowly. It's just a beautiful way of just how to communicate with people, but it's also a beautiful way where we see John slowly unveiling. Jesus communicating his identity, and he does it in such a poetic way. It's a great method. Okay, the conclusion of this week's Come Follow Me is the end of John 4. After that interchange with the woman at the well, we read verse 43, "'After two days he departed thence and went into Galilee.'" So now he's going north. "'And Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country.'" And when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went to the feast. Jesus came again into Cana, where he made the water into wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. And when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and he besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And Jesus said unto him, except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman said unto him, sir, Come down, ere my child die. Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, Thy son liveth. And he inquired, when he began to mend. And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And so the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, My son liveth. And he believed himself and his whole house. This is again the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. So this is the second sign, the healing of the man's son, the healing of him at a distance. And I really like it. It's a really good ending showing Jesus's ability to heal even though the person's not in his presence. And not only that, but looking back and
0: recognizing that the blessing started to flow the moment Jesus made that declaration. I think part of that story is for us to sit back and say, you know what? Looking back on my life, I recognize that there was a connection to what happened in the rest of my life to that connection to Christ. Letting Jesus proclaim what he proclaimed, seeking Jesus, going to where he was, had a tremendous connection in my son's life, and I'm seeing that connection. So this week's Come, Follow Me is about letting him in, looking to God and living, drinking the water that he offers, cleansing that temple as he instructs it, overcoming the natural man. If we, like this nobleman's son, could make the connection in our heads that the the moment I connected with Christ, looking back on my life, that moment was the moment everything turned around. That's the moment healing came and blessings were poured out. I want to end with Frederick Ferrar's assessment of water to wine. Frederick Farrar wrote the following, There are two characteristics of this first miracle which we ought to notice. One is its divine unselfishness. He who, to appease his own sore hunger, would not turn the stones of the wilderness into bread, gladly exercises for the sake of others his transforming power. But six or seven days afterwards, he relieves the perplexity and sorrow of a humble wedding feast by turning water into wine. The other is its symbolical character. Like nearly all the miracles of Christ, it combines the characteristic of a work of mercy, an emblem, and a prophecy. The world gives its best first, and afterwards all the dregs and bitterness. But Christ came to turn the lower into the richer and sweeter, the Mosaic law into the perfect law of liberty, the baptism of John into the baptism with the Holy Ghost and with fire, sorrow and sighing
1: into hope and blessing water into wine that's good and with that we thank you for listening we'll see you next week when we cover matthew 5 and luke 6 make it a great week talking scripture is not an official production of
0: the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints the opinions expressed in this podcast are mike and bryce's opinions only We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.